Thank you, Dan. Thank you, worship team. If you would turn to Luke chapter 21, and we want to continue our trek through the book of Luke and see what the Lord has for us today. Luke chapter 21. It's nice to have uh, many visitors here today for a very special occasion that's coming up soon. Um, when our kids were young, I can remember going to uh, the Grand Canyon. And if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon with little kids, uh, you probably had a similar experience. And that is the fear that they were going to wa- get a wild hare and just run off the cliff. And I think that's why those kinds of situations that, that people have come up with various ways of trying to protect their children from doing something crazy like that and just wandering off or running away. Um, I think this is a fabricated story, but there's a story about um, a guy who grew up in a, a family of 23 kids in uh, Provo, Provo, Utah. He was the firstborn, and supposedly they went to the zoo in Salt Lake City, and he was 18 at the time, and so he was having to, trying to care for all his brothers and sisters. And one of the sisters, his 12th sister or something like that, um, wandered off into the uh, Komodo dragon feeding area. And so as a result of that experience, uh, supposedly this guy decided, he made a vow to his family that he was going to make sure that that never happened again. And so, according to the story, he invented the original monkey backpack child leash. And so if you've ever seen child leashes where they got this harness, this sounds kind of harsh, child leash, sounds like a dog or something, but they call it child harnesses or things like that. And you put it on the child and then you are able to hold on to them and make sure they don't wander away. Now, some people really don't like that idea at all. They might consider that child abuse or, or whatever. I'm not going to try and argue for it or against it, but I want to say that there is a real motivation on the part of the parent out of love to protect that child from themselves. Because children do have a tendency to wander off. Children do have a tendency just to run off into a direction, not even knowing that they're putting themselves in danger and giving their parents a heart attack at the same time. They don't really know that. Well, I want us to think about what the Lord Jesus says in this passage in light of that dynamic. The reality that children tend to wander off. Children tend to run off in directions that they don't even realize are harmful. And the context for this discussion of that very practical reality is actually a discussion that Jesus has with his disciples about the future. And so what I'd like to do is to begin looking at this passage in Luke 21, beginning in verse 5. And I'm just going to read through verse 9, but the, actually it goes through verse 38. And we're going to eventually cover all that Jesus has to say about the end times in this passage. But I wanted to begin with just these verses which set the stage for the rest of what he's going to talk about. And so let me read for us these verses. Luke 21, verse 5. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another 
which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Lord Jesus goes on from there, and we'll get to that next week. But he begins, basically, uh, a discussion with the disciples about the future. It's about what's going to happen um, later on at some point. Um, and all of this is spurred by the fact that, that Jesus has been teaching in the temple, and he's leaving the temple, and the disciples begin looking at the temple and begin talking about the temple and pointing out how beautiful and wonderful the temple is. And as a result of that, the Lord Jesus says, well, you know what? This temple isn't going to last. It's coming to an end. And so they ask a question like you would want to know. When is this going to happen? And how do we tell when it's about to happen? What's the sign that it's going to happen? Well, the first question to ask is, why were they so impressed with the temple? Obviously, none of us have seen the temple. We might wonder what was so great about the temple. Well, the original temple was built back in... 969 B.C. by Solomon. You read the Old Testament account of it. It was a vast and beautiful thing. But it was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And then the Israelites came back from captivity. They rebuilt um, what they call the Second Temple. And it was much less glorious, much less beautiful than the the, uh, temple that Solomon built. In fact, uh, some people cried when they saw the second temple because it was nothing like the first one. Well, at about 19 BC, Herod the Great decided that he was going to ingratiate himself to the Jewish people by expanding and glorifying the temple. And so that's what he did. He began building up the temple site, and it became a magnificent building. It was vast. The whole temple area was uh, over uh, three football fields long and wide. It's a huge area altogether. And at its highest point, it would go up as you went closer and closer to the Holy of Holies. It would get The building would get higher and higher. And at, at its highest point, it was about six stories high. And then some would say there was even more above that. There was a there's a roof above it and other things above it. I just haven't seen anybody try to depict that. But it was it was a big building, very uh, impressive in so many ways. In fact, Josephus would say the exterior of the building lacked nothing that could ex- could astonish either the soul or the eyes. For being covered on every side with massive plates of gold, the sun had no sooner risen than it radiated so fiery a flash that those straining to look at it were forced to avert their eyes away as from the solar rays. 
to approaching strangers that appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, the reason being that whatever was not overlain with gold was purest white. So you've got this huge, massive structure that's covered with gold, and where it's not covered with gold, it's white. And supposedly the inner sanctuary was made of marble. Beautiful thing to behold. And some of the biggest stones that were part of the foundation of the temple were 67 feet long. They were just huge stones. And so the disciples looking around, they're beginning to reflect in the presence of Jesus on just what a great and wonderful thing this is. Um, One of the Jewish rabbis wrote, He who has not seen the temple in its full construction has never in his life seen a glorious building. You don't even know what a glorious building is if you haven't seen the temple, he would say. And so they're impressed with this. And the first question I asked was, why are we so impressed with big and beautiful? It was big and it was beautiful. You know, in Texas, people in Texas are really impressed with Texas because everything's big in Texas. What is it about seeing something big, like the Grand Canyon, which is also beautiful, seeing something like the northern lights. And we're just amazed by the vastness of various things and the beauty of various things. It impresses us. And it's very natural for us to say, did you see that? Look how beautiful that is. Isn't that wonderful? And that's what the disciples are doing. They're saying, isn't the temple a wonderful thing, Jesus? And yet Jesus doesn't say, yeah, it's great. I love it. He doesn't say that. He says, you know what? This thing's going to be torn down. It's almost like he's throwing a wet blanket on what the disciples are saying. And the question is, why? Doesn't God like big? He created the Grand Canyon. Doesn't he like beautiful? He created the Northern Lights. Yes, he likes big and beautiful. But why does he like big and beautiful? Because he's big and he's beautiful. That's why he likes big and beautiful. That's why he makes things in this world big and beautiful so that it can reflect how big, how great he is, how beautiful, how good he is. But what happens when you detach the big from the greatness of God and the beautiful from the goodness of God? You just have an, a building. You just have a big building. You just have a beautiful building. What's the meaning in that? Especially if it's going to be torn down in a few years. What's what's the value in that? Part of it comes from the idea that we are really impressed by big and beautiful because part of our sinfulness is to value things that we can see that are big and beautiful without tracing it back to God. We tend to be very materialistic. Even if we don't... Uh, formally embrace materialism, our flesh is naturally materialistic. We're prone to like to have things and have big things and have beautiful things. And sometimes our security is based in that. Our significance is based in that. We think our happiness is based in that. And that's why you've got guys like uh, Malcolm Forbes. There was a book about him that was entitled The Man Who Had Everything. And Malcolm Forbes was a very rich man. He went to Egypt and saw King Tut's tomb. And he began to think, you know, you think people will remember me when I'm gone? And he was actually the guy that came up with the 
phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins. And he tried to make sure that he had the most toys. He had a huge collection of motorcycles. He paid over a million dollars for a Fabergé egg. He owned castles, hot air balloons, and countless other things. So I don't know if in his mind I will be remembered if I have a lot of toys. If I have a big collection of this or a big collection of that, if I have a beautiful this or a beautiful that, then that will say something about me. And the reality is that's not the way it works. Jesus could say earlier in the book of Luke, not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. What is Jesus saying to the disciples? There's no life in that building No matter how big it is, no matter how beautiful it is, that's not where life is to be found. And that's why God's going to destroy that building in just a few years. Because that's not where life is found. But people are looking to it. In the Old Testament, they they would chant, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Why would they do that? Because that was where their hope was. That's where they felt their significance was. That's... That was what life was about, was in that material thing instead of, instead of in the God who was meant to be reflected in that temple. And so you've got uh, the disciples, in one sense, appropriately appreciating the temple. I'm not saying we should not appreciate what's big and beautiful. We should. But the question is whether or not it stops right there and that we make it an idol Or do we trace it back to God? And that was part of the issue that's going on here, especially if you feel like Jesus is just throwing a wet blanket on their praise of the temple. And so he says in verse 6, these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. And as I just mentioned, what he's talking about there, and you can find other places in Scripture where he elaborates more, He's talking about the destruction of the temple that would happen in 70 A.D. And some would say it actually happened on the very day that the first temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., oddly and providentially enough. Um, The Romans destroyed the temple that Jesus is talking about right there. Now the question is, what do you think the disciples felt at that point? They're rejoicing in the temple, saying, this is a great building, isn't it? Then Jesus says, it's going to be destroyed. I'm sure that did begin, cause them to say, you're kidding me, really? This beautiful building, this building that's all about the worship of God, is going to be destroyed? One of the things that the Jewish people thought was the presence of the temple equaled the presence of God. And therefore, it also said that they were the people of God. And it also meant that they were in God's favor. And they also believed that that would never change. And so you put all that together, and to say the temple is going to be destroyed meant, so you're telling me that we're going to lose the favor of God, we're going to lose the presence of God, we're, we're no longer going to be God's people. And Jesus is saying, yes, in a very real sense, all that you have thought about what it meant to be the people of God is coming to an end. And the people of God is going to be, he didn't say it, but you read the New Testament, it's going to be the church that's going to be the people of God. Now, I don't want to get into all the 
implications and applications of what, what that means about how, to, how we view Israel today or anything like that. And I'm not really trying to say anything about that. I'm just trying to say that from their perspective as the disciples, they would have been shocked to hear that the temple was going to be destroyed. And the question is, why? Why is it going to be destroyed? Well, why was it destroyed in the Old Testament? Because they were unfaithful to God. They worship other things. They worshiped other idols. And you can read First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, and it tells you why they went into exile and why the temple was destroyed. Why is this temple being destroyed? Because Israel was worshiping that temple and rejecting the true temple. What was the true temple? Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He was saying, that building right there was, was meant to point to me. I am the temple of God. I am God in the flesh. I am the temple that you're supposed to worship and you're rejecting me. In fact, you're going to crucify me. That's why the, the temple was destroyed because Jesus was rejected by the Jewish people. The, the, the picture of the temple was going to be destroyed because the actual person of the temple was rejected. And so God's judgment fell as a result of that. It's, it's an amazing thing when you really think about what all is going on here uh, under these circumstances. Well, they go out of the city and they go to uh, the Mount of Olives, it says, if you read the other accounts, and four of the disciples, not all of them, four of them pulled Jesus aside, two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, and they're sitting on the hillside, and they say, uh, when, when is this going to happen, and what are the signs of you coming? And if you read the other accounts, um, you get a better idea of what they were really asking because it sounds like maybe they were simply asking, when is this building going to be destroyed? But if you read the other accounts, you realize they were asking something bigger than that. In Matthew, it says, uh, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they're bringing in some other things here, not only the destruction of the temple that Jesus brought up, but his coming. Coming how? He, he was right there in front of him. A sign of your coming. Well, they're talking about him coming in glory in his kingdom. When are you going to establish your kingdom is what they're saying. And when is the end of the age? Meaning when, when's the end of the world coming? Because in their minds, if the temple was going to be destroyed, that must mean the kingdom's coming and that must mean the end of the world as we know it that the, the new world, the new age, is about to begin. And so for them, it's like you know somebody predicting the end of the world and, and you asking, well, when is that going to come? Uh, when will that be? Um, and the question is, why would they want to know? Why do we want to know those things? Every one of us would love to know when certain things are going to happen. And if there are signs that will let me know that they're about to happen. You know, if you knew you were going to have a heart attack on this day, or if you knew you were going to have a heart attack after these signs, then you'd want to know that, right? Because you give you a chance to prepare for it in various ways. 
Well, the upheaval of the world for a lot of people will be like a heart attack in various ways. But there's a there's a positive curiosity and there's a negative curiosity. There's a you could say there's a righteous curiosity and a sinful curiosity that comes with wanting to know when are these things going to happen. Now, if you're in a position where you know I'm just tired of my sin. I'm actually tired of everybody else's sin too. <clears throat> and I would really love for Jesus to come back this afternoon and just rid me and everybody else and the whole world of sin and bring in the perfect kingdom. And if I were to ask, I wonder when that's going to happen. I would love to know when that's going to happen because I long to be changed and I long to see the world changed. I would say that would be a, a, a good kind of curiosity in the sense that you're, you're wanting the right things to happen and you're wondering when it's going to happen. There's another kind of curiosity, um, like that comes up in different ways, I guess you could say. One way to put it is there's a curiosity of when is this going to happen so I can make the most of this world before it happens, so that I can have my fun before I have to stop having my fun, is the way some people look at it. Some people would say, you know, I hope Jesus doesn't come back right away because there are other things I want to do, other things I want to experience. Those may be good, those may be sinful. And so that kind of curiosity might be the kind of curiosity that says, well, if I knew that I was going to die at the age of 70 on this day, I would just live in whatever way I wanted to until the day before that day, then I get it right with God. So that would be a bad kind of curiosity, right? Wanting to know when things are going to happen. So there can be good reasons and bad reasons for asking these questions. I don't know for sure what the disciples had in mind, what what motivated them to ask those questions. Um, but obviously they were curious. And the reality is Jesus doesn't give them a date. He doesn't tell them exactly when it's going to happen. He doesn't say it's going to happen in 70 AD or anything like that. But neither does he say, I'm not going to tell you anything. They ask for a sign, and he actually goes on to tell them things that they should expect and things that they should do. And it's important for us to think about what he does in that regard. So in verse 8, he says, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. What does he tell them to expect? Well, in these verses here, anyway, we'll keep it to these verses. He tells them to expect temptations to be misled, first of all. And those temptations to be misled focus on false Christ and false predictions about when all these things are going to happen. And so, if you look at the history um, since the time of Jesus, there have been all kinds of people, Jewish and not Jewish, that have claimed to be the Messiah. Some of the more recent ones were people like Sung Young Moon of the Unification Church in South Korea. Um, He thought he was... Um, the second coming of Christ, 
Uh, he wasn't Jesus himself, but he was the second coming of Christ in the sense that he was going to fulfill all that Jesus left undone. Uh, you had another guy named Claude Aurelian, who was uh, called the messenger of the Elohim. And this guy led a UFO religion because he said that extraterrestrials had uh, created this world and that they had made him the Messiah. Uh, you had other people. Uh, There's a guy named Jose Luis de Jesus who led a ministry called Growing in Grace International Ministry. And he claimed to be both Jesus Christ and the Antichrist at the same time. Um, David Koresh, you probably remember him, uh, the siege in Waco many, many years ago. Uh, he was a leader of the Branch Davidians. He claimed to be the Messiah and was trying to basically um, bring about Armageddon through what was taking place in Waco. And then even today, there's a guy named David Schaller uh, from England uh, just in 2007 who declared himself to be the Messiah. So there are all kinds of people who have claimed to be messiahs. And Jesus says, um, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name. And there have been many people who have said, I am the Christ, in one way or, or another. Look to me and I will save you. Look to me and I will give you what you really long for. And so you can have a messiah complex without saying you're the messiah, thinking that you're the savior that this person needs or this group of people needs, or you can actually come right out and say, yes, I'm the one you need to look to, and I will save you. And that's part of the whole political process in our country, as we have people who are running for president, and they basically say, I'm the Messiah that you're looking for. They won't use the term Messiah, but they will make promises, and they will try to paint a vision that will convince people that they're the person that they need in order to have the utopia that they're looking for. So the spirit of it or the actual people have been manifested in all kinds of ways throughout history since Jesus said this. But he also mentions something that's a little different. He says there will also be people who say um, the time is near, that, that the end is coming very, very soon. And the reality is um, when it comes to predicting things as human beings, we are terrible at that. In fact, there's some great illustrations historically. Uh, King George II said the American colonies had little stomach for revolution. Um, the official of the White Star Line said the Titanic was unsinkable. Uh, the New York Times said that in 1939, people wouldn't have time for TV. Um, there's a, there were a couple other people who said, you know what, people never want to fly in the air. Uh, like, you know, that's just something that will not interest people at, at all. Or, and they certainly won't want to use it in military battle. Never will that happen. Um, somebody said in 1958, the Japanese auto industry won't be able to cut out a big slice of the U.S. market. Um, and then, and just before... Uh, Pearl Harbor, someone said, whatever happens, the U.S. Navy is not going to be caught napping. So there's all kinds of illustrations throughout history where people think they know what's going to happen, and they predict what's going to happen, and they're dead wrong. 
And we see the same thing happening even with regard to the end times. Uh, someone has said, uh, what do these dates all have in common? 1248, 1306, 1969, Um, illustration of this is with a guy named Harold Camping, who was the president of Family Radio, and uh, he predicted that Judgment Day would come on September 6, 1944, and didn't come, so he changed it to September 29th, didn't come, changed it to October 2nd, didn't come. Then in 2011, he said it was going to happen on May 21st, that there was going to be the rapture, And then on October 21st in 2011, the final destruction of the world, that didn't happen. Um, And so he made a lot of money. A lot of people gave a lot of money to his radio station based on those predictions. But finally, people began to get the idea that he didn't know what he was talking about. And they stopped giving to his ministry. And by the end of his life, he said this in a private interview. He said that he realized that his attempts at trying to predict the end of the world were sinful. And he said, you know what, my critics were right when they quoted to me Matthew twenty-four thirty-six of that day and hour knoweth no man. As a result, he said, and he's a very old man at this point, at the end of his life, he said that he was now searching the Bible even more fervently, not to find dates, but to be more faithful in his understanding. That's the grace of God. I've been so wrong because I've just totally ignored what the Bible said. Maybe I need to look at what the Bible actually says. And he does that. And so that's really wanna, really how I want to conclude just the discussion. This first part of this passage is to think in terms of what he just said. He said, I need to stop trying looking for dates and predicting um, when the end of the world is going to come. And I need to search the scriptures and make sure what I think is consistent with what the Bible says. I need to evaluate everything I'm thinking in light of the scriptures. In verse 8, when it says, see to it that you are not misled, that is a command. That's a command where Jesus says to every single one of us in here, do not be misled. See to it that you're not misled. The implication being there, there are all kinds of people that are trying to mislead you. If you ever saw the, the movie Catch Me If You Can, that was about a, a real guy from about 16 to 21 years old who impersonated a, a pilot and a doctor and a lawyer and all these things that he had no training for, and he still presented himself as all those things and people believed him. Now he works as someone who helps you find out who those people are who are making all that stuff up. But he was a deceiver of the first-rate kind. And if if you can portray yourself as an, a pilot and you have no training, that's some pretty amazing deception skills. If you can portray yourself as a doctor or a lawyer or any of those things and actually deceive people, then 
Don't be surprised if there are some really powerful deceptions going on in our world. Really powerful deceptions that are taking place of all kinds, not just in regard to the end times. That's the first application is with regard to the end times. But the Bible says all kinds of things about we need to take very seriously the fact that there are all kinds of things that are deceptions that are meant to mislead us. The idea of mislead comes from a word from which we get our word planet. The idea of a planet is the idea of a wandering star. It's a moving thing. It's the idea of a planet. And so the idea of being misled is being like a planet that's wandering around. It's wandering off. And so when a parent very lovingly says, don't wander off, that command is for the good of that child. And that's the, way, that's the way you and I need to hear what Jesus is saying when he says, see to it that you are not misled. I love you. You need to be careful. You need to not wander off. It relates to a lot of what we said at the 9 o'clock hour. For those who are in the 9 o'clock hour, talking about how easy it is to be misled through worldly perspectives on man and on how to solve problems. And it's very important that we not be misled. And so Jesus basically says, you're responsible for not being misled. Do you hear that? That's what a command is. It puts the responsibility on us not to let ourselves be misled. Don't let that guy convince you he's a pilot when he's not. Don't let that guy convince you that he's a doctor when he's not. Don't let that guy convince you that he's the Christ when he's not. Well, that he has all the answers about the future when he doesn't. Um, you think about Eve. Was Eve responsible? The Bible says um, Eve was deceived. Was she responsibly deceived? Was she deceived in such a way that she was responsible for that? Yeah. She was deceived and she was responsible for not being deceived. That was, a, that was a failure on her part, a sin on her part. Um, you think about the disciples. Well, let me just back up a second. Another thing that, let me just add to this, is that not only does Jesus say, see to it, take responsibility for not being misled, not being deceived. He says, and when all these things begin, begin to happen in verse 9, do not be terrified. The idea of being terrified is like being startled. Um, there was this guy that was riding in a cab one time, and he just put his hand on the, uh, the shoulder of the cab driver, and all of a sudden the cab driver screamed and punched the, the gas and, and ran over the curb and almost ran into uh, a store. And the guy, guy in the back said, I'm so sorry. Uh, what did I do? And he, the guy driving said, you know what, I'm so sorry. But for 25 years, I drove a hearse. So when you put your hand on me, it scared me to death. I was startled. That's exactly what that word means when it says, don't be frightened. Don't be startled. Don't be thrown off your game so that you go off into some wild response, some panicked response to what's happening. And you just lose your mind. Well, how how do you do that? How? How do you not get misled and how do you not panic and just run off course 
when all these things are happening, like Jesus says. Well, the disciples, you recall, um, were on a boat with Jesus at one point, um, and he falls asleep. And you recall that they wake him up and say, don't you care about us? We're about to die. And he essentially says, where's your faith? And he gets up and he calms the storm. They make it through. The question is, should the, should the disciples have been held responsible for not being afraid? And if so, why? Because when Jesus says, don't be afraid or don't be frightened, that's a command. He's holding us responsible for not being frightened. So how does that work? Well, if you read the story, and for instance, in Mark 4, Jesus tells them at the very beginning, let's go to the other side. He gave them a word. He said, this is what's going to happen. We're going to the other side. What happened in the meantime was things that looked really scary, and it looked like they weren't going to make it to the other side. So how were they to fight the temptation to punch the gas and run through the store? They had to hold on to the word of God. They had to remember what Jesus said. What was Eve supposed to do when Satan comes up in the form of a snake and says, Hey, can you eat none of these trees? Oh, no, we can eat all of them except this one. Because if we eat this one, we're going to die. And he says, Oh, that will never happen. It's not going to happen. What was she supposed to do at that point? She was supposed to remember what she had been told and believe that it was from the mouth of someone who loved her. So it's not just believe, not just knowing the Bible, it's believing the author of the Bible, believing that he really created us to find our happiness in his love, that that's the God who's given us these commands and the God who's given us his word. And so ultimately the answer to, you know, what do we do um, in these situations is the disciples were to remember exactly what Jesus was telling them because that's why he's telling them what he's telling them. He could have said, I'm not going to tell you this because you're just being curious and you don't need to know. Now he told them what to expect and he told them what to do so that they'd be prepared when it happened. And so it's the same way for us. He has given us this Bible so that we can fight whatever temptation there is to be deceived by worldly philosophies, wrong practices, people who want to take us in in all kinds of ways. He's given us his word. And when things really go south, circumstance-wise, he's also given his word so that we don't panic, so that we... Take responsibility for not being deceived. We take responsibility for not just panicking. And we take responsibility by embracing what God says in his word. That doesn't mean it's easy. doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly. doesn't mean there's not going to be a fight and we're not going to fail in various ways. It just means my father and the person of Jesus here, my Lord, my father, my God, has loved me and he's loved you by saying, take responsibility for not being deceived. Take responsibility for not being panicked by what's happening all around you. Because 
that's it's meant to drive you to this book. If you have trouble opening your Bible, then think about what Jesus tells you to do here and realize we live in a world where there's all kinds of things that are meant to deceive us. There are all kinds of things that can happen and are happening that can cause us to panic. And Jesus says the first step is to realize that you're responsible for not giving in to that. And then remember that he's given us his word and he said, I'm always with you. Ask me for the help you need. Ask me to help you understand how this word applies. Ask me to help you see how not to be deceived and how not to be just consumed with fear in those situations. Um, It makes reading your Bible every day so important. It makes taking advantage of what we have here on Sundays at 9 o'clock and at 10.30 so important. It makes important other small group opportunities that you might have. It makes important other resources that you might have on your your phone or whatever that you can use to help you grow. Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Do not be children. Don't just wander off from the truth because someone's pitching you a, a line. Don't wander off the truth be, from the truth because life is going south. Um, Paul could say in 2 Timothy 2, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The word consider there means think really hard. Think really hard. In our day and time, that's not something that we like to do. I was asking a a little boy that was visiting with Jonathan yesterday, so how's school going? Oh, he says it's prison. You know, they just keep us here for hours, and it's just terrible. It's just prison. And I said, well, you know, maybe I ought to make the best of it and try to try to learn something. And it's kind of like, you know, especially as a child in our society, life is about fun. It's not about thinking hard and learning stuff you need to learn. And we can grow up and still be like that. Life is like Life is about fun. It's about enjoying things. It's not about, it's not about thinking hard. It's not about trying to really understand what Jesus meant and how it applies to me and how it's meant to protect me from dis- deceivers and protect me from my own wrong responses to really difficult circumstances. In Romans 12, Paul said, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Which means when you present your life to God as a believer, the very first part of your body you need to present is your mind. If we're not presenting our minds to God, have we really presented our bodies to God, our lives to God? And that's why it's so important to give ourselves to the word of God in light of what Jesus is saying here with regard to the future as well as just with regard to whatever may come our way. Let me conclude with this. There's a famous hymn, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but the three, I believe these are the three original verses that he wrote. All three of them have the phrase wandering in them. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. 
Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the face of God. He, to save my soul from danger, interposed his precious blood. O to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Teach me, Lord, some rapturous measure. Meet for me thy grace to prove while I sing the countless treasure of my God's unchanging love. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O take and seal it with thy spirit from above. Rescued thus from sin and danger, purchased by the Savior's blood. May I walk on earth a stranger as as a son and heir of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that you love us so much that you tell us what we need to know about the future. And you uh, tell us what we need to do to be prepared for what will come our way. We thank you for your love. We thank you so much that you care about us. And, And I pray that we would hear what we've talked about this morning in light of your unchanging love for your people, for your children, and that we would take very seriously your command to us to see to it that we are not deceived, to not be terrified by the things that we might experience, and to to see that your word is so important in that regard, and that, that we are prone to wander. We're prone to wander off as children, and yet... By your grace, by your spirit working through your word and through your people, uh, we can grow and we can become more mature and and less prone to do those very things and prepared for what lies ahead. Help us, Father, to do what you tell us to do out of love for you and out out of faith in your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.